Then one night in 2002, I coordinated an event that was fated to change my life forever. I had landed a huge corporate gig. It was a half a million dollar affair. I was catering for a thousand people. It was one of the biggest things I had ever done and it was very exciting. With so many guests, I decided to set up stations with food for easy access. There were cartons of oysters, wheels of parmesan, whole watermelons, barrels of beer and vats of wine. Everything was displayed like a Roman banquet and was duplicated at each station so that nobody would have to line up. It looked incredible. Finally, all the people arrived. There was entertainment. There was glorious food. Everything was happening and they had the best event ahead of them. But before I knew it, the crowd became so drunk, so quickly, that barely a morsel of food was touched. Most of the food I had thought they would eat just wasn't eaten. By the end of the evening, it was insane. I literally had whole stations of food left untouched. It was shocking. This is out of control, I thought. I just can't throw all this food away. I was well and truly fed up with the status quo. It was the enormity of the waste that night that was different. It changed everything. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favorite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to Ronnie Khan. Ronnie Khan is the founder and CEO of the food rescue organization, Oz Harvest. Ronnie's book, A Repurposed Life, charts the birth and the progress of Oz Harvest, but it's also a joyful and very personal memoir that tells the story of how Ronnie found her voice. Ronnie, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share with you and to chat with you. It's a great pleasure, Ronnie. A Repurposed Life could have been simply about the story of Oz Harvest, but it seems to me that your personal journey and the founding of Oz Harvest are inextricably linked. When the idea for A Repurposed Life first occurred to you, and when you sat down to write, what did you have in mind? First of all, I co-wrote the book with my daughter-in-law. I have a marvelous relationship with my daughter-in-law and hadn't immediately thought that she would co-write the book with me. I'd been asked and offered many times by different writers to say, can we write the book for you, um, ghost writers? And when Jesse said, let's write this book, I think I'm destined to do this with you. It was nerve wracking, but it was also incredibly exciting because I knew that it would create a depth and that if anybody knew me well, it was her. She's been my daughter-in-law for 13 or 14 years and that it would have a very different lens and that I needed to be prepared for it. And so my initial intention was really just to write the story of Oz Harvest. But the minute we started talking, it became really clear to me that what was so important was that nobody should think that I am 
exceptional or special or unique or different. And so by charting my journey, I felt I'd be able to give a much rounder overview of who I was and maybe allow people to identify with the fact that, in fact, I'm not special. I have created and built something very amazing. I want to go back now, not to the beginning of the book, but much closer to the beginning of your life. And in the book, you actually explore many of the relationships in your life. In one section of the book, you say your mother was immensely practical, a no-nonsense kind of person, and your father seems to have been extraordinarily determined. How much of your parents are in you? I believe that my I embody both my parents. I always gave the credit for my energy and um, ability just to get on and do the job to my mum. But there's no doubt that my father's determination, never give up, never thinking of himself because in fact he was disabled, but none of us ever thought of him as disabled because he never thought of himself as disabled. So there's absolutely no doubt that their role modeling, subliminal, never aware that I was absorbing that, became a huge part of who I am today. That practical part is obviously essential in creating Oz Harvest. You also need to be a bit of a dreamer. There's not even any doubt that to bring something to life like Oz Harvest was absolutely a dream and impractical on some levels. Nobody had ever done it before. Nobody had any, any time I mentioned that I would do it. The practical people said, that's not possible. And I just said, mind out my way. And I guess that's the determined part. But it never occurred to me that it would fail, but it absolutely was a dream to think that you could rescue food that was perfectly good, but had never been rescued before by anybody. 160 million meals later, it wasn't such a bad idea. That's a lot of meals. (laughs) (laughs) was there a particular moment in time when you felt you found the belief that you could do it the funny thing is when I think about the beginning I never doubted for a moment that Oz Harvest would fail it just never occurred to me I think in my in my naivety and stupidity I just went with this as if this is what I was going to do. It was never going to take over my life. I was working full time. I had a business that was very fulfilling and I loved. And this was just going to be this little thing that I was going to do and succeed at because I try not to do things that I can't succeed at. And so it just never occurred to me, but it honestly, when that first vehicle and then the second vehicle and then when it just all started coming together, it was like, oh, wow, okay, okay, this is real. You seem to have related a lot of moments in your life throughout the book that changed things for you. Some of them profound, some (laughs) of them less so. There's one moment where you say a perm changed your life. Yeah, well, it's very hard for a lot of people to believe today that this person that they see and hear that's lots of black and lots of yellow and lots of jewelry most of the time, is a person who was incredibly shy, incredibly insecure. But I guess there was a core that knew that I was 
able and capable, but it hadn't it hadn't blossomed yet. But I went in, as I relate in the book with my sister to a French hairdresser that I'd never gone to before. And we just said, do something. And she came out with black and gold stripes, which she had to dye back black because it didn't change her life. Her husband was most unhappy with it. But I came out with this fro and I felt like a goddess. Now, I don't even think I looked like one, but I felt like one because actually nothing had changed physically about me other than I suddenly loved how I looked. And it changed my life because I walked differently and I carried myself differently and believed in myself differently. And so who would have thought that an Afro would have changed my life? But it did. There's also a moment where you say you felt unrestrained, where your imagination started to take hold. And these seem to have been not just the perm, but real (laughs) catalysts for change. There's also a slightly darker moment, I think, when you say there's something completely heartbreaking about holding on to what you believe in and then realising it's not enough to sustain you. Yeah. And in fact, that happened many, has happened quite a few times, whether it's with relationships or in that instance, it was about the belief that we could live in a, in a socialist commune that I totally believed in and still believe in. But the reality of it became a very different aspect and difficult to manage in the day-to-day. And that theme of letting go of things that you believe in, you know, has happened quite a few times until I found my true purpose, true calling, Dharma, whatever it is you want to call it, but in finding and building Oz Harvest. And I was struck by another passage in your book where you met another charity worker from Los Angeles, one Helen Van Duet Pallet. You say she was grey-haired, caftaned, beaded and sandaled, while you were, and you describe yourself as, in my full-blown sexy stiletto power outfit. Helen put a pretty serious question to you, which was, what's your agenda, Ronnie? Yeah. What was your agenda? And how did that encounter change you and your approach to developing Oz Harvest? So that meeting with Helen, now I'd flown to Los Angeles to find the finder once I had discovered that there was an organization doing what I planned to do. And it didn't make sense. And I guess that's where my practical side came in. Why reinvent the wheel? If somebody's done something, find out how they've done it. Um, And so that encounter, seeing in action, because I spent a day on a van with one of the um, angel harvest drivers who was doing exactly what I planned to do, fundamentally showed me that there was a track record that I could refer to, that I could come back to Australia and say, it is, it has been done. It is being done. Trust me, believe in me because I'm going to do that. Um, and, And that agenda, then I didn't really understand the question. I knew in hindsight, I don't even think I put this in the book, But in hindsight, she probably saw me 
as the exact antithesis of anyone who was about to start a charity with good intent, which is possibly why she asked me that question. But how I looked and how I felt were very different. And for me, it was really about doing something significant, something meaningful and something of value. I've got to say, as I thumb through the book, I did spot a couple of photos of you in a caftan. <laughs> you did, because I have been there in my life. <laughs> and I do love and believe that that flowy look is gorgeous. It's just not the only look that I have. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually brings me quite neatly to the next question, which is that a repurposed life contains a lot of lessons for other people who might want to tread a similar path. In the process of establishing Oz Harvest, what did you discover about, first of all, fundraising, and secondly, about dealing with bureaucracy, and then thirdly, about the importance of building Oz Harvest as a brand in the charity context? So given that I never started a charity, worked in a charity, I'd volunteered here and there, as is, appears in the book. But it certainly wasn't a, a frame of mind for me. I'd never asked anybody for anything. I'd never asked anybody for money. I'd earned every penny I'd ever made by an exchange of service and goods. And now I was needing to ask people to invest in a dream because it wasn't, it hadn't existed yet. And I had to learn some very tough lessons. And I guess the most important one is that actually people give money to people they like, as well as for the cause. But it, I didn't understand that in the beginning. And I just thought, I've got to share the, I've got to share the biggest message. And it backfired. <laughs> <laughs> what about bureaucracy? Because there was a lot of obstacles to the project in that area too. Yeah, so the second thing around starting an organisation in an area that's never been done before and where there are rules and regulations that actually block what it is and hinder what it is that you're trying to achieve. Again, it didn't really occur to me to give up and say, oh, dear, this is all too hard. It just didn't occur to me. All it occurred to me to do was got to change this, got to find the right people to support it just doesn't make sense. It's too logical that good food has got to feed people rather than going to landfill. I didn't really even understand the environmental impact then. Yeah, understanding that bureaucracy is just there to be dealt with and you've got to just outsmart it and you've just got to go around the corners and bang on the doors and not give up. I was so focused, it didn't occur to me not to do that. Building of the brand of Oz Harvest, how important was that? Well, I always thought of Oz Harvest as a business. I'd only ever set up business. And although we were considered, obviously, we're a charity and it's all about philanthropic investment, right from the very beginning, I used words like investment and not donation. Social benefit, social return on investment and value proposition. And I think that mindset, I, I've never been... I've never trained in marketing, but I totally understood that we needed to establish ourselves as much as any, as my own personal, my business had, 
and my business was orange and black and was very strong. And I knew that I needed to create a strong brand to differentiate us. I didn't even understand that I was doing this to differentiate us from other charities, but to stand out. And I think the yellow and black, you can see us from a mile away. I want to talk now about something that's very much on people's minds, which is COVID-19. And that must have posed a lot of challenges for Oz Harvest. And all the indications are that it will probably get worse before it gets better. So how is Oz Harvest preparing for the future? So that's a great question. And just before I answer that, I do want to share that I had finished the book just as COVID hit. But I feel... If ever a book is relevant <laughs> during or post-COVID, the message that each and every one of us has a role to play is so important um, and, and never more so than during COVID for us harvest. So we were hit by losing a major event fundraiser, which brought us in $3 million, would have brought us in and we had to cancel. We had to cancel our face-to-face -face events. We had just come off the back of bushfires where there was such donor fatigue because so much generosity had gone to all charity that were connected to bushfires. Of course, panic shopping, panic buying, fluctuations of food. So we, we absolutely do what we do best. We're nimble and agile. And we responded extraordinarily quickly. I lobbied to get the charity sector recognized as worthy of getting federal funding. Federal funding right in the beginning went straight to Qantas and to this business and to that business. And our sector, the emergency relief sector, there was no help coming for us. And so it became absolutely imperative that we got uh, tranches of funding to support us too, which we lobbied and got, which made a huge difference, which meant that we could purchase food. And so for the first time ever in 16 years, Oz Harvest purchased food to give out. But we rolled out about 20 new programs. We opened new free supermarkets. We've rolled out mobile markets into regional Australia. We created hamper hubs and delivered over 60,000 hampers to vulnerable people, people who had never needed food before. There's a new hungry. There are about a million more people who need food over and above the 5 million that we have been serving up until this point. So it is very real. It's not going to go away. If, even if COVID slows down, the impact of that new cohort, new hungry, is here for the long haul. And so our agility and nimbleness and our refocus, we refocused on not just food rescue, but food relief. And again, all these programs have made a huge difference. Do you get a sense there is an appetite for change, for a, a new way of looking at things, even a new way of living? So one thing I think I would hope anybody who reads my book will know that I am an eternal optimist and totally believe that each and every one of us has the opportunity to make the changes that are required. I think COVID 
whilst it has been and is a pandemic and a crisis, is an extraordinary opportunity. And I think that we have recalibrated already in so many ways. And even if I just give the example of how many people were cooking and, and found joy in baking bread and in cooking and preparing meals. So there's a new, a new value around food that people had forgotten. And that is a positive. So I think there's so many positive things that have come out of it. Yes, obviously, so many people have lost their jobs, but it's given people the opportunity to rethink about the quality of their lives. And I am absolutely optimistic about the huge lessons we have to learn. And one of the biggest ones is if we follow the science of COVID, we have got to follow the science of climate change and understand how important it is for all of us to be part of that change and demand it. That's a wonderful thought to finish on, Ronnie. Thank you very much for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you so much for sharing my book and I hope the readers enjoy it. I've been talking to Ronnie Khan about her new book, A Repurposed Life. It's published by Murdoch Books and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.